Welcome to The Math of You, a podcast about formative media from when we were young. I'm Lucas Brown. On this, our 72nd episode, I'll be talking to Jojo Scenes, visual artist and podcaster, about the adventures of Pete and Pete. Along the way, we discuss how to get your family kicked out of the Sistine Chapel, how to make blue velvet for kids, and the unstoppable juggernaut that is endless Mike Hellstrom. We'll finish the show with our signature cocktail and let you know how you can become a guest on The Math of You. Editor's note, this is part two of two of the podcast recorded during my weekend of technical problem hell. I'll spare you the details, but huge swaths of the pre-show that I'd recorded with JoJo were just completely lost as my audio engine crashed and I panicked and had to quickly come up with a solution which unfortunately led to my room mic being used for most of this episode. The episode was also recorded in two parts, which you'll hear pretty clearly. I thought about trying to make it seamless, but you just can't hide the fact that it's literally a week later. And you'll hear my voice come back to its usual sound, and then go back into recording on the laptop mic. So I really apologize for the sound quality of particularly my voice, and this was not helped by the fact that my darling son Hero decided that this was the weekend where he was going to really try out his joy shriek. And Jojo was an absolute trooper, ignoring the peals of squealing that were happening behind me as we were recording. I may release a supercut of all the times that he interrupted us, but maybe that'll be opt-in, we'll see. So yes, my apologies for the technical problems. I'll have it ironed out by next time. We join this conversation already in progress. The winter cream, the juniper, the cornflower and the chicory. Well, all of the words you said to me are still vibrating in my head. The elmish and the linden tree, the dark and deep enchanted sea, the trembling moon and the stars All right, Jojo. For those who may not know you, why don't you say who you are and what makes you a beautiful and unique snowflake? Right. My name is Jojo Seams. I'm an artist, illustrator, painter, mostly a comic book artist. I am the author and artist of independent comic The Makeshift Man, which is a... This is an awkwardly long phrase. What is my comic? (laughs) (laughs) I've heard it's about a scoundrel. The misadventures of a magical and misanthropic homeless man and his jackalope sidekick who live in a van, drive around, solving mysteries, and getting up to no good. (laughs) I've noticed you use jackalopes a lot in your art, so what is the particular fascination with jackalopes for you? Oh, well, jackalopes are wonderful. (laughs) (laughs) I've always been really big into folklore, and jackalopes are just kind of a wonderful thing. I'm from the American Southwest, so this is the American Western cryptid of all of them. I have been to Douglas, Wyoming, where this concept was first all written down, the foremost center of jackalope studies, and I've gotten my picture taken with the giant fiberglass statue of a jackalope there. It's great. (laughs) The Jackalopes thing started with the Makeshift Man, for the Makeshift Man. I didn't really know what the comic was going to be, necessarily, when I started it. It was with the idea of, well, maybe I'll do kind of a one-issue, one-single-story thing, and if I like it, I can keep going with it, and if I don't like it, 
I don't have to. And I liked it and wanted to keep going and then realized like, oh yeah, the horrible thing about having kind of a nasty asshole, really introverted main character is he has no one to talk to. Somebody, uh-huh. I should give him somebody to talk to and to play off against. So I needed a foil for him. So I decided to create a character who would just be in most ways his exact opposite and they'll have a nice sort of odd couple dynamic going on. So I decided on that. And again, most of the decisions with what the comic, The Makeshift Man, is what will I not get tired of writing and what will I not get tired of drawing? You know, hey, this is my comic. This is entirely for me. So I'm going to be as selfish as possible with all the decisions. (laughs) So what will I never get tired of drawing? Which is bunny rabbits. (laughs) I'm very familiar with them because I had seven of them as pets growing up. That is not a small number. Yeah, that's not a small number. I I didn't have seven of them all at once. I had five of them at once, but seven in total. So I'm really familiar with how they're built and how they act and how they emote. And also I love them with all my heart. (laughs) They are wonderful animals. So I decided, ah, yes, gonna have an adorable bunny rabbit. That's going to be his companion. But also be a jackalope. Right, yeah, because it's a fantasy story where sometimes I want him to deal with existing pieces of folklore. Sometimes it's stuff I'm just completely making up. Sometimes it's maybe an ambiguous mix of them or whatever. Okay, jackalopes, that's definitely a thing. Bunny, but with horns and is a magical monster. Go. <laughs> That's how that happened, was purely for a pragmatic reason to begin with, but it was great because then that relationship between these two characters became what most of the larger trajectory of the story is going to be. It's all individual short stories, but they're going to fully add up to something and there will be a larger story that kicks in. So you're essentially talking about Chekhov's Jackalope at this point. Chekhov's Jackalope, yes. <laughs> Uh, See, I have fond memories of the jackalope because when I was quite young, like I'm talking four or five, my dad would do a lot of traveling for work and a lot of it was across the American Sound. And at one point he brought me back a postcard of a jackalope, describing it to me as if it were a real animal in true dad fashion. Right. And trying to make it sound fearsome. And even four or five-year-old Lucas was not scared of a bunny with horns. (laughs) At at least until the advent of America's Funniest People and that weird jackalope thing that they tried to do, which became a minor prehistoric meme kind of just like a series of skits do you remember this no i'm not familiar with this okay well when america's funniest home videos first became a thing right with bob saget yes a competing network decided to make a show called america's funniest people with dave coulier and it was really bad because it wasn't really like a home video show but it was lots of like short sketches and also weird videos of people doing stupid things and then they would have these little skits about a jackalope a clearly like you know a little dummy with a rabbit head with horns and they would give him a terrible little voice and he would say things like fast as fast can be you'll never catch me and it was him putting one over on terrible people and it was just kind of weird and horrifying and yeah so i'm gonna move on from america's funniest people because no one needs to remember that least of all me and i'm gonna say that now those of you who may have seen Jojo on Twitter, at Jojo Seems, good quality follow, check it out, will know that Jojo loves quite a few things. Jojo loves the Universal Monsters, Jojo loves Dwight Fry, Jojo loves Psycho Watiti, Jojo loves Tom Waits, but I think especially recently, Jojo loves Junkrat. <laughs> so Jojo. Yes? This junk man, this trash man that you love. I would like to clarify, mm-hmm. I love both the Junkers, equally. <laughs> I love them both. As a pair. 
as a pair, they're better together. That's where a whole lot of the appeal is, is the two of them together. So tell me, did you just sort of stumble it? Like, do you play much Overwatch? I'm one of those people who bought it a while ago and I have not actually installed it or played it. I just have seen the sort of breadth and intensity of the fandom of Overwatch. Also, I watched Rise and Shine and cried on my way to work because that short is terrible and wonderful and just like hurts my soul. But it's been joyful watching your joy at the Junkers and exactly <laughs> and how you approach them. So did you want to talk a little bit about that? Sure. Cool. I've never played the game. <laughs> not for a single moment. I do not own a PS4. I think there's like a PC version of the game, but I don't think it would function on my laptop. Never played the game for a moment. However, there are these characters and the fine people at Blizzard put out like a really stupid three minute cartoon with these fine boys. <laughs> and I watched it like 12 times in a row and said, yes, this is mine now. <laughs> it's like this was designed specifically for me. In that here you have a classic, pure, perfect example of my favorite trope, pretty well documented on Twitter now of what I have coined the dirtbag duo trope. <laughs> so here's a perfect textbook example, and it's that, but they're like road warrior characters. <laughs> I watch all four Mad Max movies at least once a month. So this was just meant to be. It was meant for me. And there are characters that are so many of the things that I really like drawing. It's not usual that something I enjoy drawing overlaps with any kind of larger cultural zeitgeist. I'm usually drawing things that I guess no one particularly cares about, like, on a large scale. But I've been getting some good feedback on these drawings because this is the thing that people are real keen on right now and so that's been a positive feedback loop of people actually pay attention when I draw these characters so then I want to draw them again and also I just I love them because they're like horrible Looney Tunes characters who are road warriors <laughs> and there's a big quiet one and there's a skinny mouthy one and it's perfect they're so perfect Lucas <laughs> the skinny mouthy one who actually looks like he could have been designed by you I mean I've seen a lot of your art you do tend towards especially tall or skinny or just like sort of rolled out little people with you know, very prominent joints and big hands and I see that in a lot in the makeshift man and then when you draw Junkrat you're not changing his model at all just he just kind of fits into your style right yeah it's that it's that same kind of like a whole lot of my art is coming from a place of deep inspiration from Iggy Pop and <laughs> Billy Idol that's where just so much of my art style is coming from is like Iggy Pop and Billy Idol and so it's it's that sort of character type and yeah skinny really knuckly fingers and nasty teeth and <laughs> all knees and elbows yeah yeah all knees and elbows and just literally held together with garbage. <laughs> and then the other thing that I really like drawing is characters who are very, very round, like jackalopes, <laughs> very round. And so Roadhog is that. He's all circles and big rounded off squares. So both of these wonderful things. I love drawings. These two perfect, lovely characters. It's something I always think of when I think about you know, characters made of circles or really like kind of blown out proportions. I think about some of the character designs from Lilo and Stitch and how nothing was ever meant to be a straight line. Like there's a, a thing in one of the supplemental materials where the director was like looking at some of the concept art uh -huh. and there was a picture of Lilo's camera, which was a little instamatic camera. And he's like, no, 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 give me that. And then he just basically drew every straight line as a curve. He's like, think that you put a straw into this thing and went, ah, 
and then puffed it out. I want everything puffy. I want everything round. Yeah. Everything needs to be friendly. Yeah, that's wonderful. Yeah, that that sure is a... That movie is, is so amazing and inspiring and wonderful in that I think it's maybe the only of those, the big Disney animated features that you can really call an auteur piece because it was written and directed by Chris Sanders coming from his personal inspiration of growing up in Hawaii and everything. And it looks like his art. Those are unmistakably Chris Sanders characters. It's fantastic. And yeah, like not a straight line anywhere in anything he's ever drawn, I think. Everything from the spaceships to the aliens to everything, it's all rounded and it has a particular look. And I know some of that, like recently there was a big release of, there was a deleted scene where during the spaceship chase, it was meant to be with a plane. And they were told, no, you can't do that because... September 11th. And so they're like, okay, we're just going to base a spaceship on a shark. Cool. Everyone cool with that? Great. And the little ship is going to be like a lionfish and go. Yeah. I have the old version of the DVD that has a big making of documentary that clearly nobody at Disney looked at before they released it. (laughs) Subsequent releases have not had this DVD release that's so like shockingly honest about the making of this movie. It's great. There's some bit in it where Chris Sanders just like rolls by on a skateboard with a cigarette hanging out of his mouth and a giant <laughs> bottle of whiskey in his hand. Okay. It's it's fabulous. They had this whole big climatic sequence where it was going to be a, a plane that was going to be like trying to fly off and it was going to like zip through the streets of Honolulu. They changed that to a spaceship and they changed the buildings to mountains. So it's here's a spaceship, not an airplane, and it's nowhere near any buildings. It's, it's flying between some mountains. Although I I love the final result, you know, that thing where the movie becomes a fucking superhero movie and (laughs) Stitch hijacks a tanker truck and blasts himself out of a volcano. I'm sorry. That's amazing. It is. It's great. And if you didn't know, you wouldn't think that it hadn't always been planned to be exactly as it is. Yeah. But then you watch the animatic and you go, oh, okay. It's still equally awesome, but in a different way. Yeah. Which is, oh yeah, by the way, you took a member of my family. I'm going to hijack a fucking plane and come after you. (laughs) Right. I love it. It's the best. Oh, even in the animatic, the bit where he comes through the capsule at the back still made me cry. Oh, yeah. No, I was like, oh, <laughs> so great. Sorry. That movie destroys me. It makes me cry every single time. It also makes me want to just, like, throw myself off a bridge because they did all the backgrounds with watercolor. Yes. Yeah. It's one of those things where, like I've said it before, I love that movie with all my heart, but I can't watch it a bunch because it has some of the strongest mood whiplash of any Disney movie where it's just like every happy fun like high is immediately bottomed out by uh, an incredibly depressing and intense low the bit where stitch has the book the ugly duckling and he's like walking Mm -hmm. around he's saying i'm lost that just devastates me yeah that reduces me to rubble and also it doesn't help that i know for example my stupid little dog when kimiko leaves has decided that the way to summon her back is to go and get one of his toys walk to the door drop it by the door and then sit down and wait because once that worked and depending on how long we've been gone we will come and there will maybe be as many as four or five different toys that he has brought and done the same ritual with thinking each time that he's going to summon us and it doesn't work and so the idea of stitch with the book going okay this is how things work out i've read this story you go into the forest and you say you're lost and people come and rescue you but nobody does oh my god oh it's too much and jojo see we've done this thing that always happens, which is where we start talking about movies and we end up on a massive tangent and we haven't talked about you at all. I'm so sorry. No, you're not. <laughs> no. Okay, so let's start with the basics then. 
Whereabouts did you grow up? Okay, well, I'm so sorry, because the story of where I grew up is a long and meandering saga. That is okay. All right, so the most important place where I grew up is Tucson, Arizona. That's where I consider myself to be from, if I'm from anywhere. But that is not where my story starts. I was born in Saudi Arabia. Okay. Yes, a little different. My father is a chemical engineer, and at the time he was working for an oil company that was a joint-owned American and Arab oil company. So they had him in Saudi Arabia for several years, working at a refinery to, I guess, keep it from exploding, something like that. So I was born there as an American citizen born abroad. I don't have dual citizenship, but my birth certificate is written in two languages, which is neat. <laughs> we were there until I was five and a half when we had to leave because the Gulf War was happening. Just that little thing, that uh, little international conflict. Right. So my earliest sense of the world involved the idea that I'm a foreigner. There was some traveling back and forth between like a visit to America and back home in Saudi Arabia, home that wasn't actually home, with also a bunch of stopping off in Europe on the way because that was possible to do. And so why wouldn't you, you know, go to Europe? So like I learned to walk in Turkey. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of love that that's a sentence that you can just drop like that. Yeah. And I guess apparently... I got my family kicked out of the Sistine Chapel, which is cool. Jojo, did you did you vandalize the Sistine Chapel? You can tell me if you did. I think the statute of limitations has passed. <laughs> they won't tell me what I did. <laughs> I hope it was impressive. Yeah. If there was a biography of your life, it would be clearly Jojo Seams was meant for great things. <laughs> yeah, and then um, in Saudi Arabia, we, we, we lived right on the beach which was neat, right on the coast of the Red Sea. And the Gulf War started happening. And so, you know, in my little preschool, they were teaching us how to put on gas masks. Oh. Just in case. And there were a few times that air raid sirens went off because Iraqi bombers were flying overhead and we had to, like, hide under the stairs in the strongest part of the house just in case they decided they wanted to drop a bomb near us. Okay. Yeah. I would normally ask the question around, did that affect you? Did you take any of that home with you? But I, you gotta have, right? That's for the psychologist to determine. <laughs> sure, sure. I feel I'm telling all this story very badly. That's the earliest part of my life, living on this little American workers campus. Kind of like an Air Force base, but for American workers. This tiny little neighborhood where the signs were all in English and... Women didn't need to be fully covered with the veil. Did if they wanted to go into town, but here on this little campus, they didn't have to. It was interesting, I suppose. And so you mentioned that so you were five and a half mm -hmm. when you left uh, Saudi Arabia and then traveled around Europe. Roughly when did you kind of settle in the States, or did you? Actually, I should, probably shouldn't assume that. Okay, so... We went right from Saudi Arabia to Los Angeles for a year or two. That was exciting because now I had television. <laughs> After that, let's see, it was third grade. I don't remember what year it was. We're in Oakland for a year in a magical, wonderful house that I loved very much. Most of my memory of this entire year is that Behind the house, the backyard very suddenly dropped off into this ditch that was full of, like, blackberry vines that were full of thorns and things. And that's where <laughs> I spent most of my time, down in this ditch. That sounds horrible when I phrase it that way, but... 
<laughs> I chose to take the more magical aspect of it. Right. It was good. I like I built a little like fort down there and spent a lot of time outdoors. There's something about when you're a kid, when you kind of make a space your own, how even a small space can be big because when you colonize it and you decide, okay, you know, this is my fort that I'm making. This is my shelf. This is my wall. This is this thing. And it becomes this larger space in your mind that it may in fact be in real life. Yeah, that's what it was. That particular house was where I really had that. So there was this little fort down in this ditch. And I spent also a lot of time in the downstairs of this house where there was this spare room down there that was kind of the guest bedroom. And I really liked being in there because it was very quiet and solitudinous. I don't know if that's a word. Yeah, counts. Kind of having a space for my own, which I hadn't had before. Because Los Angeles, we were in a little apartment. I have two siblings, and I was sharing a room with my sister that whole while. And also in this place near Oakland, California. My sister and I were sharing a room, so yeah, having this, this kind of fort that was my, this space for myself was magical and wonderful. And then it was after a year there that we settled down for a little while in Tucson, while my father was getting his doctorate. Both my parents were from Tucson and had a bunch of extended family in Tucson. So that's, I guess, kind of the idea of where home was. And that was fourth grade through eighth grade there. And then we all went to North Dakota. And that's where I went to high school, was in Grand Forks, North Dakota, which is very different. Yeah, I imagine it would be. Now, considering the sort of freewheeling traveling lifestyle that you had when you were younger, did you find any challenge to kind of the stability of staying for four years in one place and then, you know, having to, for lack of a better word, for assimilating to this kind of everyday life as opposed to, oh, hey, you know, now we're going somewhere else and now we're going somewhere else? Sort of, yeah. I don't necessarily remember what my feelings were about that aspect of things. I feel at that point, I was having a harder time making friends, but I think that that's not so much because of the moving aspect. It's weird because of all these different changes at these different points of my life. I think of my life in a set of very discrete stages, you know, like each one is kind of its own story with its own set of feelings. They were all in these very different kinds of environments. And I feel it's really hard to talk about like my childhood because it's like, well, which chapter of it? <laughs> When we came to Tucson, at this point, we went from public school into a tiny little private school we were enrolled in. Like, very, very small, little postage stamp size religious private school. And then things, I think, got difficult for me just because there were fewer people to try to make friends with. And I was weird. So things got hard there, I think, just because there weren't enough people for me to find friends when your sample size is small you kind of like you know you don't get many chances for do-overs right yeah so it wasn't so much being in in one place so much as being in a, a really small peer group and i feel a whole lot of who i am as a person is because of a particular kind of intense sibling rivalry with my sister and that was taken off a whole bunch here as well well, you mentioned that you were a weird kid. Well, what sort of weird kid were you? Because as, you know, as a listener to the show, I'm sure you know we all have our own varieties of weird. But what sort of kid were you? Yeah, you know the kid who's like really quiet and kind of sits in the back of the room and eats paste? <laughs> I was right with you right up until the eating paste. I was the paste eater. <laughs> I'm so sorry if I'm telling my biography like terribly and all out of order and with an improper hierarchy of important events, something like that. 
Okay, well, <laughs> that's fine. It tends to happen. I mean, we're a conversational show. We kind of go off on different directions. Right. So in that case, let's jump to the top of the hierarchy. What sort of things were making an impact on you? I was really into art and literature from the earliest time. I think I decided when I was six that I wanted to be a cartoonist for a living. We had the VHS tape of Fantasia, and this was huge for me. First, I was like, oh, I want to be a character animator when I grew up. And then I decided, no, I want to be an effects animator. That seems way more fun. I guess I was the weird kind of kid who knew that those were things that existed. I was just about to say, I mean, you imagine that you'd hear, oh, I want to make cartoons. I want to be an animator. I want to be an artist. That you were being so granular with it. It's really interesting. Right. I was very specific. I eventually changed my mind, which I'll get to in a second. I read a lot, which isn't strange. Lots of kids big into reading, and I know a lot of your guests in particular, they all talk about books were huge. Books were huge for me too. I was reading things far beyond my age level, and it was weird. When the Disney film, The Hunchback of Notre Dame came out. You went digging in the Victor Hugo shelf? I was mad because I had already read it, and I was angry. (laughs) That everyone wasn't dead at the end. (laughs) Except for the goat. The goat lives. I laugh, but I was really into my mom's Les Mis tape that she would play in the car. Mm. And she got me Victor Hugo's Les Mis, that doorstopper of a penguin classics edition. Hell yeah. Like maybe halfway into the bit where they're still describing how good this priest guy is just so that Jean Valjean can steal some candlesticks and have him be forgiven. Right. And I got about partway in and I'm just, I didn't even get to the deep and detailed descriptions of the Paris sewer system. <laughs> I bailed early on. Lucas, can I tell you? Yeah. That is my favorite novel. Really? It is. That is my number one favorite novel. All 1,400 pages of it. <laughs> <laughs> All 14 burglar stunning pages of it. Yes. I didn't read that one until high school, though. Ah, I see. Right. (laughs) So you were tackling these subjects. Yeah, I was huge into folklore and mythology. I was reading every book of Greek mythology in particular that Mm -hmm. I could get my hands on. I was just enormously into that. I liked animals a whole lot and was drawing animals a lot. Animals and, like, uh, fantasy things. And I think I was always destined to be an illustrator because I was always doing, like, series of drawings it wouldn't be like a one-off thing it would be okay i've got this big book of like the complete mother goose i'm gonna try to illustrate the entire thing and do like a drawing for each poem or i'm going to do drawings just categorizing every mythological creature i can think of (laughs) i was doing a lot of stuff like that very specific very focused work with like (laughs) big old plans i was always very dead set on I wanted to have some kind of creative profession really never deviated from that when I was eight I decided I wanted to be a film director again very specific in the actual role that you're choosing rather than just I want to make movies it's no I want to be a director right I wanted to be a film director specifically I wanted to be Stanley Kubrick <laughs> because when I was eight I saw The Shining okay all right I'm I, I'm just gonna jump in here Okay. Why were you seeing The Shining at age eight? Okay, this is a good story. This is a good story. So when I was eight and we started going to this little postage stamp size private school, like every kid was invited to this one particular kid's slumber party birthday. She was in my sister's class, but it was such a small school that, you know, basically all the girls from school were invited. My sister, who is two years younger than me, but she skipped a grade in school. So she's one year behind me in school. We went to 
the slumber party and I was eight, maybe nine, but it was right around there. And this party was at this girl's house. I guess her family had some money. It was out in the foothills. And for some reason, they put like a babysitter in charge of this party and the parents decided to go to the movies or something. (laughs) I don't know what they were thinking because there was like 15 tiny girls running around this house and there's a like teenage babysitter in charge. I hope they paid that girl really well. And it's sort of descending into chaos. I don't really have much in the way of friends at this party. Things aren't things aren't going too well for me. And there are kids, you know, trying to conjure Bloody Mary in the bathroom. <laughs> I don't even know what's going on. I'm not really involved in what's going on. Somebody decides, like, we should put on an R-rated movie. <laughs> And there was a VHS tape of The Shining, and that went in. That started up. Now I'm interested. It's, of course, a slow, ominously paced film. So most of the other kids, they're kind of wandering away from this thing. They don't care. Because scary stuff doesn't start happening right away, necessarily. But I'm sitting there, and I'm wrapped with attention, because I'd never seen a movie like this. I didn't know that you could make a movie like this. (laughs) I was so interested, and I was like, oh my gosh, this blood elevator. How did they make this blood elevator? This is incredible. Like, do you only get one shot at doing that? Is it a little miniature? I was obsessed with knowing how they got that shot. And again, I just need to jump in there and highlight, once again, you were looking at it and going, how did they do that? Not, wow, that's scary. So was there already a bit of a critical remove there? I guess, yeah, but I was I was so fascinated with, with the making of it and with the editing, and I'd never seen a movie that was done like this. I was so fascinated with the whole thing, and it was so scary in a wonderful way where, like, I'm really, really scared, and I'm loving it, and I can tell that they're saying really important things, and I don't understand a whole lot of what they're talking about, but I really <laughs> want to know, and I can tell that it's very important. I need to learn more so I can learn what this movie is saying, why it's so good. Now, my poor sister is... A bit more delicate in these ways. She doesn't handle late nights very well. It was, you know, long past her reasonable bedtime. And she doesn't handle scary movies very well. So while I'm sitting there like, elevator full of blood, that's awesome. Oh my gosh, like these scary little twins. Oh my gosh, now they've all been chopped up with an axe. That's so scary, but it's awesome. And I've never seen a movie that is going to do things like this with the way it's cutting back and forth with these things and it's got this weird symmetrical shots and all of that. I thought it was fascinating. Now my poor sister, she gets so scared at some point during the movie that she throws up. Oh no. And she wants to go home. And so babysitter is like, okay kid, you can go home. I at least have the phone numbers of every parent. So she calls our parents kind of tells them what's going on. And of course, our parents are horrified that any of this is going on and they're going to come and get us. And I'm like, oh no, this has happened. If they get here, they will never let me see this movie again. (laughs) I have to know how it ends. So I am praying to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, please, I'm literally praying to Jesus, do not let my parents get here before the end of the movie so that I can see how it ends because this is my one chance until I am an adult. (laughs) They will never let me do this again. Right, exactly. Even if I tell them, no, I loved it. Yeah, it was scary, but it was good scary. Please let me see it again. Of course not. Of course not. That would be irresponsible. Extremely irresponsible. Extremely irresponsible. You know, they wouldn't take me to see Jurassic Park because they're like, that will be too scary for you. Even though I'm like, I know it will be scary. I want to see dinosaurs eat people. Let's go. (laughs) They wouldn't take me to that. I know that this one is so much more adult and so much more scary than that one. There was no way it will ever be allowed to see this. So I'm praying to Jesus, do not let them come before the end of the movie so that I can see how it ends. And my prayers were answered because right 
as the credits were rolling is when my parents appeared. So I got to see the end of the movie and it was great. And I'm like, I want to be a film director when I grow up and I want to make something like this, like Stanley Kubrick made. I'm picturing a lot of grand gestures in this statement, like grand sweeping arm movements. <laughs> I want to be a film director and make movies like that one. Right. So I wanted to be a film director that got slightly amended a couple years later when I decided I wanted to direct commercials and music videos ah. because those would be better venues for very weird experimental work because of the short format. And then it was later when I was like 14 that I decided comic book artist because it's kind of like being a film director where you get to control everything except you don't need a crew of people and money to do it. I was about to say, no budget required. Right. Well, I love drawing. Awesome. I can draw everything. If I don't know how to do it, I will learn how to draw it, and then I can make whatever I want. That's actually a remarkably straight line, if you think about it. Yeah. I think I have been a very consistent creature throughout my life. <laughs> I've been transplanted to different places, but I feel that I have been fairly consistent throughout this. The world changes around you. Yeah. It's funny that you mentioned that. Like Now I'm, I'm thinking of conversations I've had with some friends of mine that you know do film and things like that and the idea of okay well you're still working within a frame but you're also constructing that frame and how does that free you to do the things that you want without restrictions on like you said spatial relationships between things or having to all right to get the shot i have to get a number of things in front of this camera and the doing of that might be difficult you lost me there if you think about it when you're working as a director or as a filmmaker you're looking you know theoretically through your camera and setting up a shot. But in order to make that shot, let's say you want a shot with six people and a monster in it. You need to get those six people. You need to make that monster. You need to get them all in the right place in the right time. You need to light it. You need to do all these things. Whereas when you're drawing it, you can just draw. Right. Yeah. It's one person can achieve a vision, like an entire vision, and it can be this grand, wonderful thing. Yeah, exactly. You don't need to find actors who are willing to do things. You don't, you don't need a camera crew or anything which is not to say that i think of comics as like a stopgap on the way to film or like a, a concession or anything but that's where that changeover was was i wanted to be able to play around with every aspect of making a story visually and this was a way to do it i get to design the costumes and the lighting and build the sets and stage all the action and choreograph fights and do the acting it's all of that that I get to do, but it's through drawings as a comic artist. I get to do all the fun stuff, which means I have to do all the work, but that's good. Yeah, totally. So through that absolutely seamless transition that was only a moment and entirely not a week, when you wanted to come on the show, you had a work of fiction that is very familiar and dear to your heart that I actually have only a passing familiarity with, mainly due to people that I know saying that it was incredibly important and dear to their hearts. So, this Adventures of Pete and Pete thing, tell me a bit about it. All right, yes. You asked if there was anything in particular that was a big influence or very dear to me, and I immediately thought of this. I still actually consider it my favorite television show that's ever been made. It's been so important to me my whole life. It's a work of art that makes me feel understood the way almost no other art does. All right, so fill me in a little bit on what it actually is. So I know it's a television show, and it's about two people named Pete, but that's pretty much all I know. Okay, this is a sitcom, although it doesn't really, it's not really done in the style of a sitcom, that was three 
and a half and another half seasons that ran in the early 90s on Nickelodeon. It started out as a series of little one-minute short films that ran as bumpers for the station before episodes of other shows. Little one-minute bumpers, and then they did five half-hour specials. Then it started as like a series proper that did three seasons. Yeah, I feel like that's one of those things that you don't really hear about so much anymore in our current age of would start a series on YouTube or something. This idea of, oh, we'll give you a little taster before or after something that you like. And if enough people, like, I don't know, write in or call in or talk about it, then we'll launch an actual show or we'll fund something. I just feel like that's a model that just doesn't exist anymore. I don't think it does. Yeah, because it's so much easier for people to just go out and produce their own content and get it out in front of some kind of audience. Yeah, because of YouTube, other kinds of social media that makes it easier for people to share their work. And also with advancements in technology of camera and sound equipment that more people are able to have access to. Like, yeah, that doesn't really happen anymore, but it was the early 90s, so this is how it happened. A series of one-minute bumpers and three wonderful seasons, and then they concluded it because most of the cast are children, and they're just, well, everybody's aging out of this, where Pete was getting to the age where, well, he was going to have to go off to college, and Pete was getting to the age where he was going to have to go off to high school, and then it is no longer the thing that it is. It's a show that takes place in a fictional town called Wellsville. They never say what, what state Wellsville is in. You see the license plate on the family car, and it doesn't have a state listed, but it, it does have a state motto or nickname, which is the Sideburn State. <laughs> The show is all filmed in different towns in New Jersey. So it's kind of a fictional version of New Jersey, I guess, where Wellsville is. And it is about a family. There is an older brother who is in high school and his name is Pete. And there is a younger brother who is towards the towards the end of elementary or getting into middle school. And his name is Pete. So do they address the fact that they have the same name or is it just the conceit of the show? It's the conceit of the show. It's never explained why they have the same name of Pete or that anybody finds it strange at all. There is one episode where it is slightly a plot device in that there's a mix-up of a love letter delivery. I see. It's not the best episode, and I think that's one of the reasons. Almost every episode is perfect and flawless. This is one that's slightly not as great as the other ones. It's good instead of being great. And this is one of the reasons is that there is something that makes reference to the fact that both brothers are named Pete. It's otherwise just not commented on ever. I kind of think, I don't know, again, you haven't really explained more of the show, but I feel like it's telling that if this show has to bow to what would be an obvious setup for a normal show and have that come at the detriment of the rest of the show, I think that's actually a really good bellwether to say what sort of show it normally is. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. It has a lot of surrealism baked into it. I've described it to people sometimes as kind of like David Lynch for kids. Okay. All right. I'm going to have to ask you to unpack that statement <laughs> because I know you're a big fan of Twin Peaks, and I have recently mainlined the entirety of season one of Twin Peaks. How are you going to Twin Peaks for kids? <laughs> 
Well, it's not so much in the content, more the way it approaches things. The idea that a whole lot of it is just, it's not going to explain what it's doing. It's very specifically Blue Velvet that I think um, I would I would wager money was okay. like a big influence on this show. Something that they were consciously thinking of when they were developing it was Blue Velvet. I know I just said this, but how are you get a Blue Velvet for kids? <laughs> There's a lot of shit in that movie. Well, you make something amazing is what you do. <laughs> but it has a lot of the same themes of it's suburbia. And it's about exploring the quiet horror that is maybe existing underneath a docile surface of things. A lot of what Pete and Pete is doing is the subject of an episode will be something very small, maybe something very mundane, and it will cast it in huge proportions. That's all about how big it feels. Not about how big it is, but it feels big and important, and therefore it is big and important. A lot of it is about examining one's own psyche and the horror of one's own feelings. In this sense, it's very Lynchian and that there will be a lot of the town's history that is clearly present and important, but is never explained to the audience. There's, you know, plenty of things that are unlike the style of David Lynch, but there are a lot of things that are, and I feel that's a, a good starting point for describing what it's like to somebody who's never seen it. Many of the episodes have a big focus on the idea of legends, that there is some kind of legend of the town that is the focus of something, or it's about some kind of quest to become legendary. A lot of the episodes end in failure, which I think is very beautiful. There's there's a great element of tragedy throughout the entire thing. And so much of this show for kids is about dealing with one's own mortality and the idea of what are you going to leave behind when you are no more? That's what so many of the episodes sort of boil down to. Like I said, a lot of the episodes, whatever it is somebody's trying to achieve, end in failure, end in tragedy, which I think is very poignant and beautiful and something I love about this show. And that makes it sound like, you know, it, it's all very sad, but it's also... I was just about to say, I mean... It's an outrageously funny show. It's a comedy. It has this blend of tones that's difficult to put into words. Many of the episodes are filmed like they're horror films. It's very cinematic. A lot of the comedy is in treating something that's very small with the focus of a great drama, but in a way that doesn't take away from the actual emotions that are going on. You were saying that, you know, that it's, it's a comedy and stuff. And it's like when you were describing it as, oh, you know, it's about worrying about mortality and the shortness of your life and how ephemeral everything is. Yet when I looked it up on Wikipedia and had a quick roll through, I saw something about their dad running four hours to Canada to throw away a bowling ball. Yes. <laughs> I'm like, okay, all right, you have my attention. The bowling ball is sort of like a cursed, seemingly sentient object that is <laughs> driving the family to madness. It's kind of like the one ring from The Lord of the Rings, where it's exerting a corrupting influence over everyone, driving them mad with a lust for power. Okay. <laughs> so they throw it into Canada? Yeah, but then it, it comes back. Of 
course it does. Like the next day, it, like it's rolled its way back from Canada and it's like in their yard. It's come back of its own accord. <laughs> okay. So in something like this, like where, like you said, it's very anarchic and all over the place and lots of kind of big ideas seem to be happening. I imagine that a lot of the through line is, you know, sort of the characters and the family, right? Because that's kind of your constant. A lot of it. There's a lot of episodes that are exploring the family dynamic. There's many episodes that are about the struggle for power that exists between the kid characters and the adult characters. There are multiple references to something called the International Adult Conspiracy that is a worldwide network that determines things like bedtimes for kids <laughs> and that the reason is just because I said so and that it's not for any actual reason. It's for trying to maintain power over the oppressed group that is the younger generation by making them go... Trying to keep the little men down. Exactly. The littlest men they know. Exactly. Trying to keep the little men down. Yeah, trying to say, you know, I'm in charge and you are not, and so you have to do what I say, and you're not allowed to question it. This is like a, a particular episode where, you know, to counter this, to counter the oppression of bedtimes, Pete that is younger Pete, says that he's going to stay up all night, sort of calling his mother's bluff on this, that he's going to break the world record for staying up. He's going <laughs> to stay up for like 11 days solid with no sleep. And so it's this struggle going on. And, you know, one by one, the members of his party fall away. And <laughs> it's this thing where if he can do this impossible task that he'll have won in this quest as a freedom fighter... <laughs> For kids everywhere that he'll have defeated this evil, there's this amazing moment where his mother's sort of like trying to get at him, make him feel like, oh, you're getting sleepy and you're going to go down. And she's like, oh, what a beautiful morning it is. I feel so good and like fresh and alive and awake and well rested. And he looks at her, he's like, dawn was better. <laughs> and it's amazing. Wow. Now I'm trying to think how I would even approach something like this now. Because when did the show run? It was in... The original, like, one-minute shorts were kind of, like, 1990. The specials were in, like, 91, 92. Yeah, the first season started in 93, and the last season ended in 96. Okay, so yeah, I had, for some reason I had it in my head that it was so much later than that. Because, again, how people talk about it in this way, I just presumed it was something I was just slightly too old for when it came out. But I would have been the prime demographic for this when it first came out. Just, they must not have played it where I was. I guess. I don't know. It's one of those things sometimes. A thing eludes you. It's amazing. It was my favorite thing immediately. And then later it was running in syndication around, I don't know, 99, I think. And I made sure that I taped every episode onto VHS tapes so that I would never be without it in case it ever went away. And then sometime after that, they put out the first two seasons on DVD and I bought them right away. And I'm so upset because the third season they made it on DVD, like it's all manufactured. And then there was a rights issue with some music. Uh-oh. And so they're all just like sitting in a warehouse forever. Oh no. I keep thinking like, mm, I need to like get a bandit mask, find where this warehouse is <laughs> and go and liberate these DVDs the for the good of all people. So I had to make my own disc of the last season. Through, I'm sure, completely legal means that in no way involved a domino mask and like those ninja climbing claws or 
any sort of torrent. Right, definitely. <laughs> All totally above board. No shenanigans whatsoever. It's something you said actually reminded me of something I was talking to your husband Andrew about months and months and months ago. What's that? Around shows that use music, very current music of the time, and how those shows inevitably end up in like sort of this kind of limbo because you can't reuse a lot of that music on DVD the way you can on TV broadcast. Mm -hmm. Especially if it's years and years later when, so say for example, that band has broken up. You now have four people to contact instead of, you know, one entity. I, well, I think what I was talking to Andrew about was uh, Daria. I was going to say, you were definitely talking about Daria, weren't you? <laughs> yes, we were. And how, because the thing is, I first saw Daria pirated because someone bought a bootleg DVD in the Philippines and brought it back to Australia and just like put it on the TV at work. And I would just watch these episodes that had like varying volume quality and varying video quality. But all the music was there. And then later when they released it on DVD, legally, all of it was replaced by this generic music. And so I think what Andrew was arguing, and it was a long time, was that the generic music actually removes it from a point in time and makes it more universal. Yeah, that's that's something he and I discuss every, 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 every time we rewatch the show, which is pretty frequently. I thought you were going to say, yep, that's something Andrew would say. <laughs> it is something he would say, but it's also something I would say. Yeah, I, I agree. Oh, good. So with the adventures of Pete and Pete, has a lot of that been maintained or is it has it been like subbed in with generic rock number one from GarageBand? No, no. Most of the music was done all by one band. It's called Polaris. Okay. The album is called like Songs from the Adventures of Pete and Pete. And it's great. And that is all music that it was either recorded specifically for this show or they just license this entire album with an agreement that this will always be the sound of Pete and Pete. So that's not a problem. The band, you can see them just playing in the opening credits of every episode, which is fun. They're just like, here's this random rock band that's playing this song with quasi incomprehensible lyrics, just like on a lawn. <laughs> and they show up in one episode as a mysterious garage band, which is fun. There's that. There's... Some other pieces of music that has never been a problem with licensing issues or anything. All just kind of, nothing like with lyrics, like instrumental pieces going on in there. Let's see, there's some nice, there's some, I think, magnetic fields. Wait, magnetic fields? Really? Yeah. Wow. Pixies, they're in there somewhere. Okay. The problem with the music licensing was in one of my favorite episodes called Dance Fever, which is about Pete's first school dance. Younger Pete, that is. And there's a band that's playing the dance, and they are played by Luscious Jackson, and they're playing, and they're just playing the music of Luscious Jackson. And it was this that caused the issue, is for some reason the label made a stink about like this DVD going out with this band playing their own music. How dare Luscious Jackson's label, how dare. Yeah, so that's what the issue is. But music is like a huge part of this show because like an absurd number of the guest stars of the show who play characters who show up like in one episode as a member of the neighborhood or maybe a recurring character in a few episodes are like great alternative musicians. Okay. Was this something where it was like the creators were fans and would reach out or were these like musicians chasing it down themselves 
it at least started with just the creators being fans and wanting to put interesting people who maybe have never acted before into <laughs> the show. It's incredible. There's so many of them. Let me see how many I can remember. Obviously, a huge one is Iggy Pop. <laughs> okay. How do you lead off with Iggy Pop? <laughs> I know I should I should have built to this, but Iggy Pop is a Jesus. Iggy Pop is a recurring character as a <laughs> as a kind of rumpled suburban dad. You left your bike on the lawn. Okay, that's not even an exaggeration, sir. It's incredible. <laughs> they put a cardigan on him, and it's wild. He's a big part of the episode Dance Fever, where he's like chaperoning this dance and he's excited because he's playing the father of Pete's best friend, Nona, Nona Mecklenburg. So she always refers to him as her pop, which is great. <laughs> he wants her to dance with him at this dance. He's excited to like dance with his little girl. And she's so embarrassed because of how weird his dancing is. So you get this <laughs> amazing episode of Iggy Pop in this atrocious green suit busting moves that don't look like they would be physically possible and also he gets on stage and he sings to her a little bit too and it's like embarrasses her singing the song about how much he loves her <laughs> it's incredible oh my god yeah so there's one example in the summer vacation special you get little moments from kate pearson who plays a mysterious blind woman Okay. And Michael Stipe plays an ice cream salesman who sells Mr. Scrummy ice cream. Oh, boy. <laughs> and it's amazing. Buster Poindexter is in one episode as a park ranger. Buster Poindexter, who I swear at least once a year I remember existed and was a thing. <laughs> had a Christmas single. <laughs> Whenever I see a picture of him, I always think, because I found out who Buster Poindexter is through the Beavis and Butthead Christmas special. Oh, okay. When they watched That You Santa Claus and they were talking about it, and on the extreme close-ups, you just hear Beavis go, I bet this guy could pick his nose with his big toe. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. I forget what happened in the rest of that video, but that line has stuck with me whenever I see Buster Poindexter. Fabulous. Fabulous. Let's see who else. Marshall Crenshaw plays an electric meter reader. Oh, Richard Edson. He plays a school janitor. <laughs> so is much made of these people when they walk on screen or are they just sort of there the same that any bit part actor would be there? They are there like anybody else would be there. Oh my god. This is the thing that it's like when you watch like that season of Parks and Rec and you realize that this one musician who they've been talking to for the festival, oh yeah, that's Jeff Tweedy from Wilco. <laughs> I've just never seen a picture of him. And then you're like, so who is this guy? And then they've got all these other like named musicians. And so who's this look? I look at him and I'm like, oh, it's fucking Jeff Tweedy. Because again, it's just they play it like he's some guy right yeah like in every instance of this it's always they're just some guy they're never like built up at all ll cool j plays a middle school teacher in an episode stop it yes he does Stop it. sid straw has a recurring heart as a math teacher see after a certain point i imagine that people would start to talk to one another and be like, oh, you've got to be on this cool show. You know, someone's at a bar or at a gig or something. They're like, oh, we just did this thing and it was really fun. You should go do it too. Right, yeah. Like, there's got to be a grapevine somewhere. Debbie Harry De is in an episode. It just, what? <laughs> yeah, she plays just a suburban woman and Pete sweeps her front lawn for landmines. <laughs> 
in any other episode, that sentence might seem strange. Right. So, you know, so many of the, you know, just kind of one-off people who have maybe just a tiny, tiny role in one episode are like great musicians. And then a lot of them are some of the greatest character actors ever. Okay. J.K. Simmons My boy. is in an episode as a barber who doesn't talk. <laughs> Steve Buscemi is in a couple episodes, which obviously is incredibly important. <laughs> I was going to say, because why not? Yeah, he plays um, a school career counselor who's also the father of Big Pete's best friend. They put these just the biggest glasses that could on him and a suit that doesn't fit well. And it's <laughs> so beautiful. Ellen Green is in an episode. She runs the drive-in theater. Oh, here's one. Okay, maybe the most surprising person they ever put on the show, Patty Hearst. <laughs> I'm sorry, what? Patty Hearst is in an episode of The Adventures of Pete and Pete. This is an audio medium, so listeners, you can't see the sort of questioning faces I'm making and sort of gestures like I'm trying to like keep a grasp of something, like I'm on a spinning ball, like on Wipeout, and I'm just trying to hang on. <laughs> How? I just don't understand. <laughs> It's an amazing show, Lucas. <laughs> All right. So when I spoke to your husband, Andrew, about the equally weird and similarly timed Space Ghost Coast to Coast, there's two things I'm going to ask you for. One would be the most exemplary episode of the show. The one that if someone saw this episode, they would go, All right, now I get. And also, what one would be your favorite? Oh. Oh. Mm. One episode. I think probably... If you were only going to watch one that would be just a real... I think the one that would be maybe the best example of what the show is, like a, the sum total of the show in one episode, would maybe be what we did on our summer vacation, which is one of the specials in what I think of as like season zero, where there were like the, these five episodes. This is an episode where the Pete's and their friend Ellen, they're trying to befriend the ice cream man, Mr. Tasty. They don't know anything about him. He is always wearing his uniform, which involves a giant plastic head of like a soft serve swirl as like a big plastic head that he wears they want to be his friend and he keeps pushing them away they try to like you know ask him things about his life and to get close to him and he keeps you know kind of shutting them down that like ice cream is all there is to his life <laughs> and then he leaves town and the town is suffering because it's summer and there's no ice cream and also they're feeling terrible what have they done to drive him away they were just trying to be his friend and so they're trying to find him and bring him back and that is maybe a good episode that holds the larger themes of the show in one episode i think if you want you know maybe one of the most extreme episodes of what the show is capable of would maybe be Inspector 34, which is Pete wants to find who he thinks of as his guardian angel, which is Inspector 34, because he notices that there's always a little inspected by tag that's always the same person whenever he gets a new pair of underwear. <laughs> and Inspector 34 comes to him and is going to like train him in the ways of being an inspector. That's a good one. Possibly the best episode that's one of the freedom fighter type episodes is X equals Y, which is a great rebellious crusade goes up in defiance of algebra word problems. <laughs> 
that one is a great epic, epic struggle. Because I mean, even like what you said before about the one I did my summer vacation, the idea of, hey, we tried to be nice to this person and he didn't want it. And also the kid-sized problem of the ice cream man used to come by and now he doesn't. And it's not even that he doesn't want to be their friends, it's that he can't. Is that like fate is keeping them apart. He cannot because he is an ice cream man and he is fated to go where the summer goes. And this is his lot in life. And they have to understand that. They have to understand the limitations. They're from different worlds and it's beautifully heartbreaking. <laughs> Please tell me it ends in some kind of like elaborate Shane kind of analogy. It kind of has a lot of the same feelings as the ending of Shane. Honestly, it's beautiful. There is no more ice cream in the valley. Like I, said, like I said, a lot of the episodes, they sort of end with failure in sort of a beautiful way. They don't get what they were trying to do, but they get something else, and it's good. A lot of my favorite episodes are ones that involve a recurring villain, a young man named Endless Mike Hellstrom, who I think was... That's like a wrestling name. That's awesome. I think he was my first crush, this... This evil bully. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> With some very good boots and a sort of like nasty jacket that has like his family's extermination company logo on it and crooked teeth. Oh my god. I, I, this is based on what I know about you. This makes perfect sense. Oh yeah. It, um, yeah, it, it makes, it makes sense. So he's, he's not what you typically think of as like a school sitcom sort of bully. He's a villain for older Pete like in high school. They never explain where the endless part of his name comes from, that it- Well, I imagine his name is Hellstrom, so I imagine it's a play on like Endless Hell. Right, so it's sort, of, it's sort of Endless Hell. It might be some kind of idea that he keeps repeating the same grades over and over again. Oh. It yeah. might be something else. There's definitely a, a play on Endless Hell going on, but they never actually explain the origin of his name in any other sort of way. He's like walking around with like a little bit of like five o'clock shadow all the time as a, as a high schooler. <laughs> as a high schooler, I thought he was going to say he was going to be bully, a bully of Little Pete, and he's just walking around elementary school or middle school with five o'clock shadow. There is a different kid who walks around in middle school who is able to grow like a full beard in the course <laughs> of like maybe two days little kid named Clem Linnell. He occasionally just like grow a full beard in middle school, but no. Um, Endless Mike, he's great in that what he's after is not to terrorize Pete or to beat him up. What he is, is a sort of Mephistopheles kind of a character. So he's trying to corrupt him. Exactly. Whenever he's showing up, it's that he's trying to corrupt Pete's soul. And it's Oh my god, it's so good. His big episodes are Halloweenies, the Halloween episode, where he's trying to get Pete to join him in going against the spirit of Halloween and just raining disdain on all those who love the idea of, you know, costumes and trick-or-treating by just, like, terrorizing the neighborhood. It's very good because at the end of the episode, Iggy Pop just, like, dunks on him and is making him, like, <laughs> scrub his steps with a toothbrush and calls him a stooge. <laughs> it's so beautiful. I want to see my face in those steps. It's so good. He's a big part of the episode Time Tunnel, which is about how you get to time travel twice a year when daylight savings time changes. <laughs> this is one where he's trying to corrupt Pete's soul in trying to push him to plunge into 
a physical relationship at the drive-in. Okay. It's great. There's an episode called Yellow Fever, which is the high school class is all going on a field trip to the Glurt County Milk Museum. And along the way... Can I just say, just to interrupt for a second, I have a soft spot in my heart for really shitty field trips depicted on television. I don't know why. It's always good, yeah. It's never not good. Ugh. Right. They never actually make it to the museum. The whole the whole time is a very claustrophobic time on this bus ride where everyone is sort of descending into madness. I was going to say, if you had said it's an extended waiting for Godot rift, I would not have been surprised. <laughs> but instead you say it's this heart of darkness. Yeah, it's, it's, <laughs> it's, it's very heart of darkness. And a big part of that is... Endless Mike almost succeeding in bringing Pete totally over into the dark side. And you mentioned before that Endless Mike Hellstrom sounds like a great wrestling name. There is a fantastic wrestling episode. Oh? It's part of where it gets to its most surreal. This is the one where Mike is sort of a physical threat to Pete. Pete joins the wrestling team at school. He wants to be on the team and get his letterman's patch and he's like last on the squad. So he's pretty much just a bench warmer and he's so happy about it. There's a point where Endless Mike is starting to like come in to like torment him a little bit and then the other wrestlers come to Pete's rescue and they're like, ah, no, he is one of us and they chase him off and then Endless Mike is going to get his revenge. So what he does is he transfers to another school, joins the wrestling team so that he can wrestle Pete and kill him. And of course, Pete is like last on the squad, so... Endless Mike is rubbing out the other wrestlers <laughs> one by one, like he's physically murdering them <laughs> in very elaborate ways. It comes down to like, Pete decides like, oh no, he's after me. He will destroy me. What do I do? I need to change weight divisions. That's what I need to do. So I'm, I'm going to lose a whole bunch of weight. And then Mike is like right there with him, like losing all the weight. And it comes down to this incredible scene. They're side by side at a weigh-in in the locker room. And they're different by like one ounce. This is after Mike actually gets one of his kidneys removed to bring his weight down. <laughs> they get down to it and there's like one ounce that's separating them in weight division. And so Mike very calmly pulls out a monkey wrench. Oh no. And he's like, excuse me a moment, won't you? Oh no. Very calmly puts it in his mouth oh, no. and he yanks no. out like a huge molar. And then he's, then he's down to the one ounce and they have to wrestle each other. And then they get to the wrestling match and it's great because he comes out. He's like, he's got these absurd boots and a cape and the zebra striped thing. And he's painted his face like a skull and he declares himself the doctor of death. And it's so good. Oh, that sounds amazing and this is only one episode this isn't a special or an extended thing this is one episode oh my god this is <laughs> this is one of my favorites a lot of my favorite episodes are these endless mic episodes <laughs> <laughs> those have a special place in my heart in your childhood scumbag memories yes exactly <laughs> <sighs> well at least you're living your gimmick jojo that's the most important thing <laughs> i i have i am a consistent creature <laughs> All right, we should probably wrap it up there. So, Jojo, if people wanted to find your stuff on the internet, maybe buy some art from you, where would they go? 
Oh, yes. My website is jojoseems.com. J-O-J-O-S-E-A-M-E-S. I'm on Twitter, at jojoseems. I'm on Instagram, at jojoseems. I'm on Patreon, patreon.com slash jojoseems. And I have art prints that are available for sale and original art. I've got an Etsy shop where you can buy original art right from me, which is great. On Etsy, it's J Seams Illustration, but you can easily find it through any of those other avenues. And you could listen to my new podcast. Brand new, hot off the presses. Brand new. Yeah, just released our first episode of The Invisible Ray that I do with my co-hosts, Andrew Isla and L. Collins, part of the Intuit Podcast Network, so Intuit Podcast, The Invisible Ray. The first episode has just dropped, and I've listened, and I really love it. It's about Rocky Horror. You should go and listen to it. Yes, this is a podcast where we are people who like movies, and we discuss movies, and our first episode is about the Rocky Horror Picture Show. And also, you painted the incredible cover art for that podcast. I did paint the cover art, yes. I paint things. <laughs> and also, in case you haven't seen me spouting about it on Twitter, JoJo also takes commissions on the regular, and JoJo has drawn me such things as budding NC Bucky Barnes, Cyclonus and Tailgate, my beautiful robot gay babies, and has also designed me a tattoo, of all things, which is currently on the inside of my red arm. Yay! I did! I did do those things. <laughs> So yeah, definitely, if you want something drawn, and something it's always going to be something good, get in touch with Jojo. I'm sure she will take your money. Probably, yeah. <laughs> All right, Jojo, so thank you so much for putting up with the myriad technical glitches and reschedulings and everything that's led to this episode. I am going to go see if I can track down some adventures of Pete and Pete here in Australia. Yes, you will like it, I hope. <laughs> I think you will. I think you'll get what it's about. I certainly will. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you. Thank you very much to Jojo Seams for her time, and for being an absolute trooper with this episode and the myriad difficulties that came with it. The story of Jojo's signature cocktail is kind of a long and interesting one. Initially, when I asked her for her opinion, what she said was, I don't like beer, all beer is gross, I guess it's the hops I don't like? Whatever it is that makes a beer a beer, that seems to be the thing I don't like. But I love whiskey, I drink a lot of bourbon, fruit flavors are very welcome, no strawberry because I'm allergic, I like pomegranate a lot, Is, is that anything to start with? And it was, and I came up with an idea initially around bourbon or rye with Punti Mez and dashes of absinthe and orange bitters and chocolate bitters and either pomegranate syrup or grenadine, and it all kind of came out much of a muchness. So then I worked out something simple that was just like a Manhattan variant with some maraschino liqueur, and then something kind of magical happened. I'm just going to read these messages verbatim because I think it's kind of special. Jojo says to me, 
I just woke up and I need somewhere to put these errant thoughts before they escape me. A message to you is the obvious correct place for these half-formed notions. It came to me in a dream. Idea for Roadhog and Junkrat-themed cocktail. Something something blood orange. Whiskey. Sprig of rosemary. Here's the important part. Super lemon candies. It would perhaps be better as a shot so as to drink it while the candy still has fizz, but would there be any way to drink it without danger of choking? Perhaps that's the entire point. It's going to be bright orange, sour, have little round yellow explosions going off in it, and you can drink it if you have a reckless lack of fear of death and dismemberment. Thank you for listening. So how all of that kind of brain foam came out was that we worked out an ingredient list that involved, at the time, blood orange soda, ginger beer, bourbon, whatever trashy fruit-flavored energy drink Andrew gets at the gas station, a sprig of rosemary, a couple of those citrus fruits that grow in JoJo's backyard, super lemon candies with smiley faces drawn on them with food marker, and a dash of cayenne pepper garnished with a small plastic pig and spikes. This kind of crashed into the reality of the fact that blood oranges are not in season in Australia, and you can't really get super lemon candies unless you order them in from Japan. But I do love rosemary as a garnish, and at a bar in Chicago, I did have a rosemary garnish that was smoldering. So Jojo and I split into our separate corners, and each came up with our own drink. At the time of this recording, Jojo has not finalized her recipe, but I will post it as soon as I get it. Mine is called The Steel Trap. In a rocks glass full of ice, combine one and a half ounces of bourbon, one and a half ounces of limoncello, half an ounce of extra dry vermouth, a splash of ginger beer, one dash of spiced orange bitters, one dash of Angostura bitters, and stir quickly to combine. Add a pinch of cayenne pepper to the top and garnish with a smoldering rosemary sprig. Any problem that can't be solved by money or explosives isn't worth solving. Enjoy! The Math of You is recorded in Leichhardt, New South Wales, Australia, and is written, hosted, and edited by yours truly, Lucas Brown. New episodes are released every Wednesday evening, and if you'd like to be a guest on the show, simply send an email to themathofyou at gmail.com and tell us what you'd like to talk about. You can follow the show on Twitter at The Math of You, and you can follow my wacky adventures at Lokified, L-O-K-I-F-I-E-D, on Twitter and Instagram, and Lokified82 on Snapchat. If you have a few dollars kicking around and would like to directly support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash Lokified and pledge as little as a dollar a month. Or, and I'm going to keep saying it, you can pledge as much as you want. That would really impress me. Patrons get early access to episodes, physical mail, cursive tweets, and I would really just appreciate it a whole bunch. If you'd like to support non-monetarily, you can go to Apple Podcasts in the country of your choice and leave a five-star rating or write a review. It helps support the show, gets us up on those charts, and it'll stop me from going into Apple stores, looking up my podcast on the iPads, and rating it from there. Okay, I've only done that a few times. But it does really help. If you like the music I play on the show, there's a Spotify playlist for that. 
Go to bit.ly slash themathofyou with capitals at the beginning of each word to find a Spotify playlist with every song I've ever used going all the way back to episode one. That's like nearly 11 hours worth of music, including this song. It's Palaces of Montezuma by Grinderman, which, if you don't know, is Nick Cave leading the Dirty Three. It's a pretty good combination. Next week, it's the return of a very special event. It's another quiz show. And this time, I'll be bringing back Chris Sims and Matt D. Wilson in what I'm calling the Great Ajaxian Bash. Join me, won't you? watch that deleted scene from Thor Ragnarok with Jeff Goldblum having like freaky tentacle sex which was important and amazing got set up for this call and here I am I've got coffee happy feeling good (laughs) so mildly prepared I was not aware of this deleted scene tell me of this deleted scene I guess it just went online today, but yeah, it's just a deleted scene and Thor and Bruce Banner are sitting around and Bruce is eating some kind of like alien squid thing with chopsticks and like talking a whole bunch about like, sorry, Thor, that your dad is dead. I never got to say goodbye to my dad and like work things out. And Thor's like, well, I did get to say goodbye to my dad. He was murdered right in front of me. And that's awkward. And Bruce is all like, oh, hey, you're Thor. You can kill your sister. I believe in you. And Thor's like, um, (laughs) what? And meanwhile, he's got this, like, hologram thing that's, like, coming up from the table. And he's, like, poking buttons at it, trying to get it to work. Like, change channels of whatever this thing can show him. And it comes up with this 3D hologram thing of space Jeff Goldblum, Grandmaster. And Jeff Goldblum's got these, like, foam tentacles, and he's just kind of in ecstasy with them. (laughs) Like, these foam tentacles were going to be replaced with, like, CGI ones that would be really active participants in this scene, but (laughs) it's it's kind of amazing, because Jeff Goldblum making passionate love to a couple of foam tentacles, he's just, like, rubbing them on his face and moaning and such. Okay, I am just going straight to, like, Edward. Right? Like, you have to fight the octopus to make it look like it's killing you. Yeah, it's it's like that. It's it's like... 100% it's, like that. It's like that, except, you know, they're just having a real good time. <laughs> there doesn't seem to be any enmity between them whatsoever. With any other director but Taika Waititi, I would say that would seem strange or be difficult to pull off. But no. It's... No. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. <laughs> and I know Taika Waititi is his own person, but I'm always just hearing him as like the dad from boy as just like like with a cigarette hanging off of his bottom lip <laughs> and just being like with a shitty little mustache and just being like just whip the tentacles around just whip them around like you love them yes yes <laughs> <laughs> no it's like that it's passionate <laughs> oh he's a treasure he is man. oh he's he's amazing it's it's unfair Oh, I can't remember who it was I was talking with, but there was like a series of his different looks and there was one of him wearing just like beat up jeans and a t-shirt and he's looking like scruffy of a morning and with like a five o'clock shadow 
and again with that cigarette stuck to his bottom lip. Oh my god! And like, like sort of, and it's in black and white too. And he's like sitting on like, like not quite a balcony, but like one of those patios that's on a roof that like goes to the edge. And he's just sort of sitting there looking seedy as hell. And he's just like looking back at the camera. And the only thing I could articulate it to the person who posted the picture was it's the equivalent of waking up the morning after and seeing him sitting on like a fire escape smoking and being like, uh, I, I could make you some. Do you want some coffee? I could like. I think I've got some eggs around here somewhere. I could, I could, I could make you some breakfast, or no, I'd, we we could go out, or or no. <laughs> it's just like, oh, it's an entire scene from a photograph. Oh, oh, mm, that mm, yes, that is, <laughs> that is that is an um, that is an important photograph. <sighs> yeah. This is completely unrelated to what we've just been talking about, but I had to bring it up because when I'm kind of bored at work, I will occasionally just, you know, surf TV tropes waiting for someone to come up and ask me a question or something okay. uh, while I wait for the next thing to happen. Sure, yeah. And and I found myself on the page to a movie I have not thought about in a few years, but it was very, very important to me, which was Mystery Men. Are you a Mystery Men person? I am such a huge Mystery Men fan. I love <gasps> that movie. I adore it's that such movie. a good movie. Yes. Yes, I love that movie with all my heart and soul. And not just because it has Tom Waits in it not, as a non-lethal inventor? Not just because it has Tom Waits in it, but oh my gosh, this is this is such a, a peak Tom Waits role because he is an eccentric inventor who lives in an abandoned amusement park creating non-lethal weapons and also he rents out chickens. And and, like and good... he he goes to nursing homes and uh, and galas to seduce old ladies. Right. Yes. <laughs> oh. Oh my God. Oh my God. It's so important. It's so important. And he's like chatting up this lady and like touches her hand and does his little Tom Waits eyebrow wiggle and he's just like, hello. Right. He he like uh, picks up a dish of hard candy that's that's sitting there because it's at a nursing home. So of course there's there's like dishes of hard candy everywhere. And he like he picks it up and kind of presents it to her. He's like, if you want some candy. <laughs> He gives her a little little wink, little eyebrow waggle. Mm-hmm. It's amazing. And he's wearing this incredible mustard yellow jacket. He's doing it. 